Yeah, good morning, everyone. Uh, so we're going to be continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke this morning as we discern and we wrestle with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus uh, in the world today. But before we do that, I think it would be helpful for us to take some time and look at a bit of the history of what's going on when Luke's account was written. And so what we know from historical accounts is that around uh, 62 AD, uh, Luke wrote his account. And soon after that, these, uh, this very important and significant letter began working its way around the churches in the Roman Empire. And what's very interesting is that while this is going on, while churches are being formed and shaped by the words of Christ penned by Luke, another character is entering the scene. And he was an emperor in the Roman uh, Empire. And up until this point, no one had as much hatred towards the Christians as he did. And his name was Nero. And so what we know about Nero is that he was insane, but he was also brilliant, which was a very dangerous combination to have, especially if you were the unlucky and unfortunate souls who Nero didn't like. And the Christians were some of those people. And so during his reign, Nero... Uh, was known for lighting half of Rome on fire and watching it burn to the ground. Now, we don't really know why he did this, but there were speculations that he either wanted to blame it on the Christians, which he did, and he wanted to get rid of them, um, but there was also some hints uh, that could be deciphered that while Rome was burning to the ground, he got inspired to write a beautiful song. So he went to the roof of his home, and as the fire was decimating the city that he ruled, he was writing a song. And right afterwards, the Christians took the brunt of the blame for that and an immense persecution broke out. And it was very significant because the way that these Christians would die were some of the most brutal ways that you can imagine. One of the most well-known is that Nero had these beautiful, this beautiful garden that he owned, and he needed a way to light up the garden. So he would take the Christians, put them in cages, and cover it with tar, and light it on fire as torches to light up his garden. So needless to say, being a Christian at the time was not great. And in this time, in this, 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 this very peculiar and sad uh, time frame, we get Luke's gospel, who's writing to a friend and then it becomes widespread among all the churches. 
And in it, he is, is calling the church to a radical, transformative standard that which we must live by. And throughout his book, it gets expanded upon in various ways. We've talked about some of them already, and we will uh, in, in the near future. And this morning, we're going to look at one of those. And arguably, it's probably one of the most well-known ones. Um, but I think it's actually one of the most difficult ones. And as a church, as they started reading Luke's letter, and as it started forming and shaping who they were as a church, on the horizon ahead was this emperor that came onto the scene that totally wiped the, the name of Christian and gave it such a negative connotation. And Christians were hated. And within the letter, Luke is preparing the church for what lies ahead. And how is he doing this? Is he getting them ready with sword and spear? No. But what Luke is pushing is for an arm, is, sorry, is by arming them as the church in a standard that is in complete reversal of what the culture expected. In Luke 6, 27 to 31, it says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. The response that they were called to emulate must not be like the rest of the world, but it must go against what the world expects. For a people who were suppressed by the nation of Rome under their dictatorship, always living in fear for what they would do, there wasn't this confusion of who their enemy was. But then Luke goes on and he says, just in case you're unaware, let me remind you, in light of this emperor that's coming on the scene, just a few verses later, in chapter 7, verse 1, we are given one of the stories of Christ's healing. And who does he heal? A Roman centurion's slave. And it is a wild story. Because at a certain point, Jesus gives a description of the kind of person that this Roman centurion was. And he calls him, he says that in all of Israel, I haven't found anyone that has as much faith as, as this man does. Isn't that wild? Like that would be crazy to hear that. 
after this huge bulk of teaching that Jesus does and what, about what it means to be a disciple and the cultural reversal that we're called to, Luke places this example of what it looks like. You know who your enemy is. You know the ones who seek harm in your life in a real and tangible way. But the calling that you have before you is to not respond by becoming even with them. But your response is through love. In the passage that Jesus gives, he gives us some practical examples about what it looks like to show this kind of love. One of the most surprising statements, and the one that we're going to be spending uh, our morning on, is on verse 29, where it says, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. You've probably heard this before, this idea of turning the other cheek. Even if you're relatively new to the church, I imagine you've heard this to some degree or another. Maybe it's an offhanded comment that people would say. But for this morning, I actually want to just focus on this. Because I think that if we have a grasp of what Jesus is saying here, it will help us to understand the context for the verses around it. But what are we talking about here? What is this radical, transformative standard? What's that even mean? What, what are we, like, turning out your cheek? What are you talking about? There's been a tendency to think that Jesus is telling us to passively ignore evil and let us become doormats in the face of injustice. And I want to show you this morning that that is not what Jesus is trying to get at here. In fact, what he's saying is actually the opposite. Sometimes we get this image in our heads of us like standing face to face with uh, with somebody and they just like just just slug us in the side of the head. We're just like, oh man, that hurts so much. And we're like, okay, all right. And you, you know, you whatever. You compose yourself and all right, we're good. And then you just look at them and then you just turn your head. And you're like, okay, this, this side, you didn't hit this side. You can, you can go ahead and hit this side. So like surprisingly, that's actually not what Jesus is trying to say here. In the culture that they were in, striking someone on the face, a, a better word would actually be slapping, um, it was a way in which one would publicly shame someone. It wasn't intended for inflicting pain physically, but for damaging the honor of that person. This action is signifying a harm in one's reputation. And as a response, there's usually one of two things that we would commonly do. On one side, there's this desire to seek vengeance, to bring insult to them as well. And when we do that, when we respond to evil, what happens to the evil? It's kind of like us saying, well, because they did that to me, it only makes sense that I do the same thing back to them. And Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. That is not what I'm calling you to. 
Why? Because you have not solved the problem. Evil is still there. In fact, it has multiplied. Jesus is calling us to rethink the way that we see our identity. Not as one who needs to constantly save face, but as one who holds to the truth of who they are in Christ. Not scathed by the forces of this world that seek to steal, kill, and destroy. And what does vengeance do? What happens when you take a huge pile of garbage and you throw it on someone who just finished throwing a whole bunch of pile of garbage on you? Well, you have two people covered in garbage, smelling terrible. And the problem has not been resolved. It's just been added to. And then on the other side, there's some of us who find ourselves staying in a place where those around us continually beat us down with their words and their actions. Are we to let people walk over us? Are we to be these doormats to the world? And so this is where it gets really interesting. Because we are given an important clue that this is not what Jesus is trying to get at here. In verse 27, it says, to love your enemies and to do good to those who hate you. This idea of doing good is repeated a couple times in this section, which is very significant. Because doing good is an action term. And it's actively working through love. In Micah 6.8, the prophet expands upon this love when he says that we are to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Another way that we can understand that word justice is by calling it restorative goodness. An active pursuit of restoring goodness back into the world. So how are we to respond? By passively ignoring evil? Absolutely not. But by using love as an urgently active force. It means responding to evil, not with more evil, but with goodness instead. So what do we mean by this? Well, let's... let's, uh, Let's ask a few questions that might help clarify some things. In the pursuit of biblical justice and biblical love, is staying in an abusive relationship loving? Is giving someone money, knowing they are going to go spend it on drugs right away, loving? Is allowing someone to continue to insult and manipulate you Loving. No. 
Well, why not? And this is key, you guys. Because if what we do fuels the other person to continue in their sin, that is not love. If what we do fuels the other person to continue in their sin, that is not love. For Jesus, his response to sin was not to continue to let it take over the lives of humanity. On the one hand, he could have retaliated by destroying sin, which would mean, in turn, destroying us. On the other hand, he could have done nothing about it and let it continue to walk over mankind. But he didn't actually do either of those things. Instead, Jesus' response to sin was to actively pursue it by means of sacrificing himself for the reconciliation of humanity to the Father. On the cross, moments before his death, Jesus cried out to the Father and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus' life and death and resurrection all point to a God who forgives and reconciles the world to him. And that forgiveness is what we are called to emulate in our lives. That forgiveness is costly because sometimes it requires us to rock the boat. It causes us to confront evil with love. And often, those who are in that evil are either in denial of it or have no intention of changing. But Jesus still calls us to that love. That in every conflict, in every situation that we face with someone, that our intentions, that we would have this longing above all else for a justice that is restorative. Our justice does not look like the world's because it is always for restoration and never for revenge. And this justice in our lives comes through the grace of Christ alone. In the passage we read, another active way in which we can do this is through praying for those who treat us harmfully. This is another one of those tangible ways that goes against absolutely everything that we want to do. But God wants to give us his strength when we ask for it. In 1997, during the war in Ireland, Mr. Gordon Wilson and his daughter were attending a Remembrance Day service when the IRA set off a bomb in the building they were in. As a result, Wilson's daughter succumbed to her injuries, died in the hospital. Later, when the BBC came to interview Wilson as he was recovering, he responded by saying that I have lost my daughter and we shall miss her, but I bear no ill will 
I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. I shall pray for those people. Tonight and every night. May God forgive them. Later it was reported that Wilson received these letters accusing him of actually not showing love for his deceased daughter because for them to not hold on to the hate towards the IRA is considered not loving. This restorative goodness culture that we are talking about flies in the face of the world around us. In our pursuit of justice, May it always be with the posture of forgiveness and longing for restoration to happen. So what does that mean for you today? Well, it could mean several things. Maybe you're in a relationship right now that you need to end. Maybe you need to confront the person in your life that has been constantly beating you down. Maybe, and this one... It's particularly hard for me. Maybe it means letting go of the expectations that the person in your life is going to return that favor or ask you for forgiveness. In whatever situation you're facing, how are you responding? Because however you respond, may it be fueled with goodness and reconciliation. May the love of Jesus overflow in you, knowing that because of Christ's forgiveness for you, you can in turn have that same forgiveness for everyone around you. In recent history, we've had few people who showed us this kind of justice like the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. did. Though he may not have been a perfect person, we can't deny the impact that he had. Faced with a constant barrage of racial discrimination, including threats, abuse, and wrongful imprisonment, Martin Luther King continually held a posture of justice that was restorative goodness in action. Imprisoned, we are able to see this through the letters he wrote when he said that the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. And so it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness can't drive out darkness. Only love can do that. Hate can't drive out hate. Only love can do that. Former Vice President of Booth University in Winnipeg, David Neal makes this observation Many of the verbs and pronouns used in these verses are plural. So love your enemies, that your is a plural that's getting used there, uh, which indicates that there's a communal response to action. So what does this mean? 
Well, church family, as we close, I want to challenge us to reflect on these words. When individuals act nonviolently and generously, it is very powerful. But when communities do so, it is even more powerful, leading to a transformation of a culture. May we be a community of believers who transforms the culture around us into a restorative goodness to the praise and honor of Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord God, the calling that you've set before us is to seek your justice that is restorative goodness. And that is a hard calling for us, God. But just as Jason, uh, just as Brandon was talking about before, as he was reading, the burden that you put on us is light. Lord God, may you give us the strength to be the restorative goodness people in the communities around us. To the honor and the praise and the glory of you alone, Jesus. Amen.